Welcome to Justice Studio Sessions. I am Marianne Moore, foundress of Justice Studio. During these sessions, we will be exploring the social justice themes that have emerged through Justice Studio's work, showcase grassroots activism, and deep dive into ethical and equitable research and consultancy methods. Stay tuned to learn more about the complexities of social justice and how you can turn your passion into action. Hello, dear listeners. In this episode, we will be discussing food poverty and in particular food banks in London. We're delighted to have two guests with us to delve into this topic. First, Dr. Iram Ali. She's a social scientist and consultant who works in diversity, equity and inclusion in the charity sector. She's a dear friend of Justice Studio, as well as being on the board of trustees at the Bow Food Bank in Tower Hamlets. Also joining us is Lily Bissett, who was formerly Justice Studio's operations director and still a very dear friend. She's also currently the manager at Hyams Park Food Aid in Waltham Forest. Let's begin. Great. Well, hello, Lily and Iram. It's very exciting to have you here. And we're going to talk about food banks in London. It would be great if you could both introduce yourselves. Uh, hi, I'm Iram Ali. I work as a policy consultant for charities and as a researcher. Um, however, I've been volunteering at my local food bank, which is Bow Food Bank, since 2021. And just over a year ago, I joined their board of trustees as well. Awesome. Thanks, Iram. And hi, Lily. Hi, Marianne. Uh, my name is Lily. I am a charity operational, um, operations professional. I've been working in the nonprofit sector for the past decade or so. I was actually the operations director at Justice Studio up until last year. And this year I made a bit of a shift and I took on a role managing um, my local food bank and community hub, which is the Himes Park Hub and home to Himes Park Food Aid. Amazing. Yes, it would be great just to hear in general a little bit about your overall food banks. So Iram, yours is based. We are run out of Rains Foundation School in Bethnal Green and we've been running since 2014. We experienced a spike in demand over COVID and so moved to different premises. We're hoping to move to permanent premises in on Roman Road in Bow early next year. So fingers crossed. We've Great. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you're, you're Tower Hamlets. You cover Tower Hamlets and then further north from Tower Hamlets is where you are, isn't it, Lily? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I mentioned earlier, we are the Himes Park Hub. Our food bank is a lot newer than, than the one in Bow. We were actually started during the COVID pandemic when it was realised that there was a need for food aid in the north of the borough of Waltham Forest. And what actually happened was food aid organisations in the south of the borough were cycling food up to the north during the pandemic. And obviously that wasn't really a sustainable solution in any way, shape or form. And so through various partnerships, it was realised that there was needed, this was a needed service in the north end of the borough. And from that Himes Park food aid started up. And so obviously that continued to exist and then as the pandemic sort of started winding down lockdowns ended 
you know, the original intention was that this food aid would cease, but instead they realized that the opposite was true and there was actually need for it um, more so than ever. And there were a lot of people that were in need. We serve the E4 area particularly. And after the pandemic, we were originally in a scout hut. The scouts needed their hut back. We found a new home at All Saints Church Himes Park, and we've had a wonderful partnership there. And they've let us really have a lot of free access in their space to store our food, to keep all of our supplies and things there so that we can run our food bank two days a week. Amazing. Thank you so much, both of you. I mean, the work that your food banks are doing is incredible. I think that certainly food banks seem to have come a lot more into our consciousness recently. I don't remember them being as such a need a few years ago, but they really do seem to have proliferated recently. And I think that's obviously as a consequence of food poverty, but can we help people to understand what food poverty is? Are you able to talk a little bit about that? We can define food poverty as limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods or the ability to acquire such foods in socially acceptable ways. So several terms such as food poverty, food insecurity and hunger are used interchangeably. At Bow, we insist on calling it food poverty because that's what it is. It's it's not having the income or the provision to be able to buy food, enough food to provide for yourself or your family or, or both. A little bit of background, the UK's food poverty rate is among the highest in Europe. At one in five people, so that's around 20% were in poverty in 2021, which 2020 to 2020, 21, which equates to about 14 million people. Of these, 7.9 were working, 8 million were working age adults, nearly 4 million were children, and 1.7 million were pensioners. So one of, you know, they're the reasons for food poverty are complex, but we know that food price inc- inflation has reached you know, 17.1% by the end of January this year, which roughly amounted to about £650 additional food bill for the average family in the UK. And then when you, so when you think about that, that's staggering. So, you know, if we look at kind of a blunt, um, re- like if we look at very direct reason, it's, it's food costs have gone up. In addition to that, energy costs have nearly quadrupled in the UK over the last few years and people just simply are not earning enough money and not being provided with enough benefits or other provisions, other direct provisions to them to cover their food costs. And in terms of both, we realize that we food banks are, you know, we're at the and I think there's all food banks, we're at the coal face of policy failures and provision failures on the on on the part of government and you know families are cutting back on food provision because they know they can and it's a cost that they can cut because provision has sprung up to fulfill the need so there are different offerings across boroughs and across the country whereas things like heating and housing costs you can only cut so far so food unfortunately is one place that families are able to cut with often parents going without food and elder children eating less and so on. So that's a you know a bit of a bit of a snapshot, but the COVID has definitely made things worse and we saw food poverty completely soar during that period of time. Thank you, Iram. I think the main thing that I would say, just speaking anecdotally from what I see with our people, is that there's a real mix of reasons why people end up in food poverty and what that can look like. It's not something that is well defined in the sense of there is no one standard definition. These are just, you know, all of our kind of concepts and ideas coming together into what each organizational group kind of defines, you know, their view on food poverty. But 
for us, we see people who just aren't receiving enough in benefits, the two-child cap, for example, bigger families, they're hit immediately. They've got more children, they need to feed them. And that benefits don't stretch that far. We see people with huge amounts of debt where technically on paper, their income should be enough for them to afford food. But because of these debts, they're not in a position to do that. And debt agencies are taking their, you know, the money back. I have people that, you know, get benefits and those benefits should be enough. And they walk in saying my benefits were paid yesterday, but then my energy provider took their direct debit and I've got nothing left now and I can't afford food. So it's a whole range of different things going on. And it's very hard to say that's why you're in poverty or this is the one thing that needs to fix. It needs to be a very comprehensive big picture solution that we're looking at across all these different moving parameters of what people need to live in order to change, to move the needle, to eliminate food poverty, I would say. Yeah, gosh, yeah, it does sound really complicated and really, really, really difficult for so many different reasons. I wonder, in terms of kind of the whole landscape of of food poverty, where does London fit in? Because obviously, it, it is the capital and historically, it, it has often had a lot of, of of social injustice and so where does where does London fit in and where do your food banks fit into kind of the London picture? I'll kick off um, so London is the highest rate of poverty of any region in the UK and we know that the cost of living in London astronomical across the income scale and as housing prices have gone up as energy prices have gone up more and more families have been priced out of London but also more and more families have fallen into we say fallen into but are experiencing food poverty in terms of where you know due to rising costs a recent survey showed that 42% of surveyed London parents reported to cutting food purchases and doing things like only eating one meal a day themselves so they could provide for their children Tower Hamlets. In Tower Hamlets, poverty is very acute. It's one of the most deprived boroughs in our country. In 2019-2020, the overall poverty rate in Tower Hamlets was 39%, which is the highest rate in London. It also tragically has the highest level of child poverty in the UK, with half of the children in the borough living in households which are below the poverty line. And over five years, this has only only grown. So, you know, we are absolutely at the forefront of the food crisis in the UK in Tower Hamlets. Also, 44% of older people in Tower Hamlets live in low-income households and are really energy insecure, which also means that they're likely to be food insecure because energy costs, you know, a lot of their money, as Lily just mentioned, is going into energy payments. Yeah, I think what I would add to that, and this is going beyond London, but just thinking about the national picture for anyone who doesn't know, food banks in the UK are not state provided. There is no state provision. They're all run by charities. And so largely they are independent organisations. They're community organisations where people have seen a need in their communities for this type of support. And they're around, you know, over 2000 food banks in the UK and they're all run by charities. A number of them belong to the Trussell Trust, which you may have heard of, which is one of the big organisations providing food aid across the board. There's also, I believe, out of sort of the 2000 food banks, around 1200 are Trussell Trust. And then you've got 800 ish, which are part of the independent food aid network, which is where Himes Park Food Aid and I think you as well at Bo, we're both independent ones, but we belong to the independent food aid network organisation which provides some central voice for us. And I think that's particularly powerful when speaking to policymakers and, you know, just amplifying the voices of those who are not able to speak, but very much feeling the impact of all of this. In terms of Himes Park Food Aid, as I said, we started up during the pandemic and 
E4, if you know it, is sort of quite traditionally described as a rather affluent area. And I do get people these days saying to me, oh, I'm very surprised that you've got a food bank there and it's not seen as an area where that type of support may be needed. But obviously we have seen since the pandemic that that's very much not the case. And I think in terms of the demographic of people we have, it's very different from a traditional kind of central London food bank where you have maybe higher levels of poverty and the demographics of people are quite different. For example, at our food bank, we don't have a large homeless population. We have literally two or three people on our register at any point in time. What that means is our people have roofs over their heads and they usually have access to cooking facilities of some kind, which has a big impact in being able to provide meaningful food versus thinking of one gentleman I know who is currently homeless you know, he lives in a tent in Epping Forest, you know, what food can you give him that he can make good use of as well? That's a very difficult situation to be looking at. But I think our food bank happens to be a bit more representative of, you know, outside London in terms of those areas. But because we are within London, we have a London postcode, we are hit by London costs of everything at the same time. And so that's an interesting kind of shift in who we serve and how we serve it and what that looks like yeah I guess you're kind of one foot in one foot out of kind of of London and the landscape there exactly that it is yeah it is really interesting to to see the difference between both of your boroughs and yet how much need there still is it's just kind of being shown in slightly different ways I guess is there Irem, was what was the driver for your food bank beginning? Obviously, Lily's was in the pandemic, but was there anything specific that made your food bank start? To be honest, I'm not sure, but I think it was just general poverty in the Tower Hamlets area. I mean, it's Tower Hamlets has been traditionally a very working class, you know, it is a working class East London, you know, area. And there's always been poverty. But I think in the, you know, if we look back at the history of, you know, Benefits cuts and cuts to local funding starting in 2010, it kind of makes sense that 2014 was when the food bank started. As Lily's, you know, talked about so eloquently, it's a complex picture of why people need food banks. And we have to always keep in mind that cuts to local funding, cuts to local council, cuts to mental health services, cuts to women's aid services, cuts to family services, or providing families who have children with special needs, cuts to those services, all of that contributes to costs that a family uh, or an individual has to bear to get by and and if and often food provision for their family is a place that gets squeezed first uh, because a lot of these costs are non-negotiable costs um so yeah i think it was general you know poverty in the borough and we started in a church we started in bow church and it was you know we used to provide you know a cup of hot tea a biscuit you know something sweet to eat a conversation a chat with our clients and then you would be provided with a shopping experience or as close to one as we could provide where you know there would be different categories of food and you'd be able to choose up to a certain you know combination of food items because of the numbers we've had to move to a completely different model and i think you know in contrast so there are lots of different models that food banks and food hubs operate on and we operate on uh, a, a parcel or bag model and what that means is we offer four different kinds of basic bags and that will be a vegetarian bag a meat bag a fish bag and a non-cook bag so the vegetarian fish bag are of course halal and the meat bag which is important for our you know for our community and our client base and the meat bag we we can't guarantee it's halal and then there's a non-cooked bag and the non-cooked bag goes back to that we have a lot of homeless people a lot of asylum seekers and a lot of refugee refugees on our books who are applying 
for asylum or applying for. So a lot of these folks will be staying in hotels, will be moving from place to place quite often, and they may not have access to a kitchen or cooking facilities. And our non-cook bag, the fact that we have a set non-cook option is proof of that, that we do have a clientele who, you know, will need to have things straight out of the tin, or at most they will be able to uh, maybe boil water. So instant noodles or things that cook very, or like porridge packets that you can pour water into, hot water into those kind of things are very useful and um, then we on top of the, the basic food bag we provide a set of household items for example you know dish soap or washing powder or deodorant shower gel and the client can choose according to their needs and we have a top-up household like cupboard provision which you know you can choose oil or sugar or tea bags coffee or you know juice concentrate again based on on your needs we also given the levels of you know period poverty we provide sanitary napkins and tampons if clients need them and also nappies for clients who need them and pet food because we understand that food poverty is not just about actual food it's about you know having things that you need for your day-to-day -day lives and a lot of our families with very young children complain about how expensive nappies are yeah is it similar for you lily how, how is it arranged in your food bank yeah, really interesting to hear that, Iram, actually, because I can see obviously some similarities, but ob um, some differences as well. In terms of similarities, we are at the stage that you were when you started. And perhaps, I don't know if that's an indicator of where things might go for us in the future. But right now, we, as I said, are based in a church in All Saints Church, Himes Park. And it's a lovely space, which we are very grateful for, because I think it really gives us the entire, the type of environment and atmosphere that we think is so important for people who are, you know, in this position of needing food aid, which is a really personal, really emotional, difficult situation to be in. Sometimes making that step just into the room is really, really hard. And you see people sometimes in our porch area and they want to come in, but they look nervous. I've had people come in and burst into tears. It can be so difficult that first time. And so the space that we have is really meaningful to us because it facilitates so much. We do have the style where we have a community cafe running alongside our food aid. And so that community cafe is serving hot tea, hot drinks, tea, coffee, as well as we serve a hot meal at lunch, jacket potatoes and toasted sandwiches, soup or that type of thing. And so when people come to us, they get served, they get matched up with a volunteer server. And as you said, supermarket style is what we do, where you're working your way down a long row of food and you get the agency. We think it's just really important to be able to choose the food that you eat. And it also just reduces food waste. I do believe that most people don't eat food they don't like or they don't know what to do with it either. If it's something they're not they've not seen before, not had before, it doesn't fit what they normally eat a lot of people will choose to throw away food. And I think there is this, this idea that people should be grateful for the food they get and they should eat what they're given, but actually people don't work like that and they don't owe us anything for giving them food. Um, they are allowed to make that decision for themselves and their families, what it is that they put in their bodies. So we work down supermarket style. They choose the food as they go um, within limits. We have guidelines for how much food each person is entitled to based on the size of their household. And therefore, that makes it really easy for us to deal with things like dietary requirements, halal, vegan, vegetarian, gluten intolerance, whatever it is, we can cater to pretty much all of it. And we're very lucky in the range of donations that we have, that we get a lot of all of these different things. So there isn't really any kind of challenge in that. One thing we don't do, which you do, is household items. So we do 
have household items that occasionally come into us. We do not actively solicit donations of household items. And we made a very um, deliberate decision not to focus on that. And I think for us, it was very much a matter of looking at other food banks and how it's gone over time and realizing that we didn't really want to experience kind of mission creep, I think. And some people, they go into household, they go into baby banks, they're suddenly holding up racks of clothes. And we wanted to really focus on what we were doing and really just keeping our minds focused on what are we here for and what are we attempting to achieve with this. For us, it came back to food being the gateway to services where we wanted to obviously provide the food aid that we're able to do thanks to the generosity of supermarkets and our community and getting that food. But actually, we wanted to focus on people's underlying issues and understanding why they were in food aid. And obviously, some of this is policy, it's governmental, that's out of our hands. But for a lot of people, as I mentioned, things like debt, that's something that we can actually do something about. We have a befriending team of volunteers, a volunteer run team. And that team is really instrumental for us because they get to know everyone who's coming into our space. So anyone who's referred to us, they sit down with one of our befrienders first and that befriender has a chat with them and understands their situation. They're referring to our partner organizations. They're also providing that friendly face and listening ear. But ultimately, we're always working with people to say, how can we help? How can we change things? And what would you do if we disappeared tomorrow? That, you know, what does that look like? And can we help you get there? And for some people, it's, you know, addiction problems as well, drug and alcohol. There's a lot of stuff going on. And we're lucky that we have support groups running in our church hall as well, which I know people attend. Yeah, I think that you've raised a really interesting question. I mean, what ha- what would happen if all of the food banks disappeared? I think a lot of people would go hungry. That is the fact of the matter, right? That there would be people who would not eat. And certainly talking about families, there would be parents that just won't eat to feed their children. It's that straightforward that there would be people who don't eat. I think, I mean, what else is there to do? I don't know if other solutions would you know, come about. Obviously, things like food pantries at the moment are kind of gaining in popularity. And there are other solutions to gaining surplus food at low cost. Because I think the other part of food aid and all these food banks, this food we get, it is largely donated. Our food is 80 to 90 percent donated. We buy a small amount of food every week and that's fresh fruit and vegetables. And we spend money on that. That's where our donations go. And that's because we want to provide a healthy and nutritious amount of food. As I've said before, our food bank has a demographic where people generally have cooking facilities. And we just think that's so important. You can't reliably get it donated because fresh goes off. So it can't sit in a a trolley in Tesco's until we collect. So we just choose to spend our money on that. I think you would see the standard of food that people eat going down if we didn't exist. And so it's not necessarily that they would be starving either, but they wouldn't be eating a balanced, nutritious diet anymore. It would be the cheapest of cheap of what could they possibly get off the shelves in Tesco, which is not a good way to live. And particularly when you're thinking about children, thinking about stunted growth and the impact on them long term, that they might not be starving. And obviously, I think this year we've got um, preschool meals, don't we, for all primary children, which is excellent um, and a huge impact for those children. But still, these are the kind of scenarios we're looking at. Yeah, I think it really takes us back to times that we thought we'd come out of, doesn't it? It really takes you back to this idea of kind of Victorian starving children and and starving families that don't have any way of of yeah feeding themselves and getting nutrition and and you know n- with no 
safeguard from the state. And I think it's really interesting what has kind of led to the fact that we've got so many food banks now and and kind of what the peaks and troughs have been in terms of demand. And it'd be it'd be interesting to hear kind of what you guys have experienced, because it seems that when the government had the austerity drive, for example, and, and is giving less benefits and and kind of cutting back on on really primary services, then that's impacting people. And then when they do give more benefits or, or things like free school meals or or other kinds of benefits, then things will get a bit better. Can you talk a bit about those kind of trends? And maybe Iram, do you want to give us a bit of, of info on that? On that? Yeah, peaks and troughs. So in co- during COVID, we saw a huge diversity of people coming through our doors. We saw people on zero hours contracts who suddenly didn't have work anymore. We saw people who had jobs but were not furloughed or didn't have you know contracts that would cover covid they were coming in we still see delivery drivers just eat drivers uber drivers coming in they'll come in on their bikes with that branded backpacks and they'll tell us look i I need to you know the the longer i'm off delivery means i'm not making money can you expedite my food parcel we see lots of people on zero hours contracts coming through and recently we had a bus driver come through and that really broke my heart um because he has a large family and he has family over from overseas and he they just weren't able to provide. So I think COVID was definitely a peak period for us. And we suddenly saw, a, you know, a widening of the types of people who are needing food aid. Um, and now it's, it's just, you know, it's a reflection of our borough. It's mostly families, pensioners, single mums who need the food the most. I kind of also wanted to flag that interestingly, all of our, most of our food, 90% of our food is food that we buy. And only 10% of our food is donations, I think, roughly, because we have a very specific food offering that goes, because we are not a supermarket-style operation, we have refined what our clients need. And so we have a very specific bag of items that we know suit our clients. So we have a large South Asian population in our borough, so we definitely need rice to go into every parcel. We definitely need, you know, so lentils are a huge thing. And then onions and potatoes are two huge fresh food items that, you know, people want in bags. We had a thing where, you know, none of our adult, not none, but a majority of our adult clients didn't want to eat Weetabix, but their kids liked Weetabix, you know, and that's kind of a generational thing or it's a kind of, you know, the South Asian parents or maybe first generation migrants didn't want to eat it, but their kids really liked it. So we request monetary donations because that allows us to leverage the money most effectively. So currently we give out food parcels that cost about £30 in terms of retail cost. And we currently get them for about 12 to 13 pounds. So that's because we have longstanding contracts and relationships with both large supermarkets like Morrison's. So we get food at wholesale prices, but also local suppliers for like fruit and veg. And so that again is a huge overhead. Someone has to do that. Someone has to order every week and manage that food you know, gathering every week, we found that when we encourage a more donation model, we don't, we get inappropriate items. We get items that we don't want. And Lily's absolutely correct. People will leave food that they know they're not going to use. So we request, we have a table at the end. If you go through the whole process, we have a table at the end where we say, if there's something in your bag that you know, you're not going to eat, and um, please leave it with us. And we'll make sure someone who can use it will get it. Because again, we don't want people dumping food so yeah I think there's there's very different approaches that are based on what the needs of our clients are. It's really interesting that you've moved to more of a monetary model after kind of having this mismatch between donations 
Is uh, Lily, what, what you've you've already mentioned this a little bit already, but did did you have any other things that have happened in terms of kind of mismatch versus what is provided versus what is needed? Not too much. So our donated food, if I just speak through where those donations come from, because there is a real mix to it. So we are part of, we work with an organisation called Fair Share, which is about distributing surplus food from supermarkets. So we collect food from about five Tesco supermarkets the nights before we run the food bank and we get a large volume of our food from there. And that has always been pretty good in terms of, I mean, lots of breaded goods, far more than we need, and they're all going to go off. But we get quite good meat options, veg options. We also get cakes and pastries, which might not sound like the type of food that we need, but they're food that we can give out freely as part of the cafe offering. And it's quite nice to invite someone to have a hot drink and a piece of cake. And it's always nice to be able to give families a whole cake, if, especially if you've got a child's birthday or something. Usually we've got a handful of cakes that we yeah. can give out. And that's it's very nice to be able to make that gesture. On top of that, we're very lucky that we've got a couple of um, organisations that donate food to us directly, Hovis and Warburton's. We've got partnerships with just, you know, very nicely through people that wanted to volunteer with us or support us rather, that work in those organisations facilitating those. So Hovis give us a certain number of loaves of bread every week. Warburton's give us a number of breaded goods every week. And that's very much them saying to us, what do you need? And we're able to tell them, well, this is the volume and the type of white bread, brown bread, blah, blah, blah. So we're getting exactly what we need from those sources. We also are supported by our council, Waltham Forest. And I don't know if that's the case in other areas, but Waltham Forest actually buy in food to distribute to the food banks in the borough. And so that's something that they are choosing to do to support us. And they have a list of different foodstuffs that they can give us. And we select the items that we want. So we do actually have agency over that donation and we can specify what are the things that we want. So I believe in the beginning, before my time, bit of trial and error, trying different things, seeing what people go for. But now we've got a very standard list of things that are donated. And Waltham Forest are you know, they're really on it, that team, which is lovely. And for example, today, I received an email saying that they're aware of increase in demand um, coming into winter, and they've put in plans to increase the size of the um, donation of the food that they give to us. And so that, again, is appreciated to know that those numbers will go up. So all of those sources, and then of course, we get donations from the public and so that's you know we've got a trolley in tesco's and things like that and people just come in and directly donate food that i will say is more unpredictable you never quite know what people will give us we try very hard on social media to post what we call our shopping list and we tell people what we're short of and we sell it out and people are actually very good about looking at what we're in need of and then donating those items so that helps us kind of focus attention into the areas that we need it to be but thanks to that kind of mix of sources, it means that we largely get the food that we need. There will always be random items that come our way. And we have an end table where we put those random items and it's a free for all. Take as much as you want. We just want to be rid of them. And if you like it, have it. But that's a very, very small proportion of the food that we get, I would say, are random items. Everything else is largely along the lines of what we're looking for. You mentioned that there is an acknowledgement that there's more demand in winter. Is this because of the prices of heating and this kind of thing? Or can you tell us a bit more about what, what the seasonal changes mean? 
Yes, I think it's exactly that. And I think particularly learning from the energy crisis last year, which I don't think people saw coming, that lesson has been learned well, hasn't it? And even though I know energy prices have stabilised a little bit, they're still much, much higher than they used to be. I mean, I see yeah. it myself when I look at the cost of electricity and gas per unit, and it's just incredible to me that they're so high and they've stayed that high. So certainly we know that the temperature has dropped, you know, within last couple of days of recording this and you can feel the cold. Everyone's putting their heating on more now just to manage. And particularly if you've got vulnerable people in your house, you've got older people, younger children, those people are not in a position where they can afford to compromise in that element because that is their immediate health at risk. So we are expecting that to be a quite immediate cost to be borne by everyone, you know, in the coming days and weeks. On the flip side, I think in summer with the, you know, with the free school meal provision being gone, we find that our clients who have, you know, two, three, four, five kids, suddenly there's a spike in demand. And often you'll see mums coming in and using a whole bunch of visits over summer. So they'll use like six visits. So one thing we also find is because we do 12 say at registration that, you know, you're welcome to use these weekly, but also this is the provision you have for the calendar year. Please be aware that you can also, you know, I think because we are, a, there's often a, a lack of understanding around where, who food banks are, you know, so we have clients who think that we're, you know, a government provided organization, they think we're part of the council, or they think, you know, it's a government scheme. And we often, you know, there's, there's a, a huge piece of education that is kind of often missing between food banks themselves and their clients because you know we're too busy providing food but you know often in conversation we will say to our guests that no no this is all private donations this is community so the maximum the majority of our funding comes from local donations just like one-off or monthly donations from people like you and me and then we get corporate donations so they'll they'll be bigger and, and often a corporate will come in and have a corporate social responsibility day where maybe 20 volunteers will come in and, you know, volunteer for a shift. And then we'll try and parlay that into a relationship and say, would you like to donate on a regular basis? You know, would you like to build a relationship and have away days and corporate social responsibility days? So oh, to go back to kind of how people use a visit. So in summer, often families who are you normally might come bi-weekly or come once a month often we'll just see them coming every month for six weeks. And we understand that that's because of the free school meal provision suddenly being taken away. So often there's a direct link between things like winter, energy, school meals, and you know we see it the next week. For example, during the week of Eid, there was nobody you know our numbers dropped to absolutely no one almost you know we had like 70 80 odd people and and one of the volunteers were like what's happening and i said it's eid you know people are celebrating at home they don't want to queue at food bank on eid so kind of basing off what lily said about special items even though there is so much demand we try and around special times of year provide special items so you know we got these ice pops that you could put in the freezer for summer for children and that's kind of cake when during school holidays and for Christmas we provide you know kind of more biscuits and just little things that you know often families who are food insecure will not buy for themselves because it's you know a treaty item or it's an it's a it's not meat potatoes you know it's not carbs it's not basic food items so we also are aware that it shouldn't just be a provision of basic food everyone deserves joy everyone deserves to have nice things so there are certain times of year we also add to our provision on a one-off or two-off basis just to mark specific times of years like dates around Eid and Ramadan and you know Christmas items around Christmas. 
Yeah, it always annoys me that that people kind of forget that that people need joy. You know, that's you know when life is so hard, you do want something to enjoy, don't you? I mean, there there needs to be for us to to live. I feel like there are an awful lot of assumptions that people make about people that might need food banks and and just around the whole food poverty issue. I was wondering what are the main kind of assumptions or misconceptions that you've come across as you've been working in the food banks and and how would you counter them? I think there's an idea that uh, a particular kind of urban food banks and as we've heard from Lily uh, and myself that's not the case there's you know you know, we have clients who were formerly what we would call middle class and they've fallen on hard times, job losses, loss of contracts and so forth, not really financially recovering from COVID. I think the thing I would say to listeners is there is no one kind of person who comes to a food bank. It's like homelessness. There is not one kind of person who's homeless. And, you know, when you hear the word food bank, please don't judge who's coming through our doors because that is a huge mistake. That being said, of course, there are, you know, there's greater need in, you know, older people, pensioners. There is a greater need in homeless communities. There's greater need in asylum seeking communities because the asylum seekers allowance is not enough to cover their needs. It's paltry. And even once you've had your asylum claim, not claim, you're kind of, you've got your card to say you are an asylum seeker, you're waiting to hear back, even then the provision is paltry. And so we allow more than 12 provisions on a, um, what's the word, uh, that, you know, the volunteer or the manager can make discretion on a discretionary basis for, for example, women in refuge situations, domestic violence situations, for uh, asylum seekers, for refugees, for homeless people. And we don't cap them at 12 visits because we know that, you know, us saying, turning them away and saying you can't have any more food until January of next year means they won't, they won't eat. And so we don't want to do that. Um, we can't do that to everyone, unfortunately, but we try and do that when it's really needed. As food aid providers, we really keep an open mind and we try not to turn anyone away. And we know that, yeah, there, there's a multitude of reasons why people come in. And Lily said something about people being really shy or feel really nervous or ashamed. And that's something we try and fight at every shift to have a welcoming environment because there is such deeply ingrained shame it is not unusual on every shift to have one client or two client in tears because they don't want to be coming to a food bank they think they've failed somehow they've failed mm -hmm. their families they've failed themselves it's you know the way the the cultural conversation occurs around poverty is that it's a moral failure of an individual and not a systemic and infrastructural failure that has come about as a result of you know ill thought out or or actively you know negative policy implementation and policy decisions made by governments you know it, it's 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 really convenient to point to a person and say oh you're poor why is that but the reason is often a complex mix of infrastructural reasons time reasons and personal reasons and in a little way i feel like even though food banks plug that need and of course we're going to be here and we're going to keep operating as long as we needed but we've also provided multiple governments with cover because they know we exist they know we will do our best to get the food to our communities we will contribute time and money and resources so i just looked at a piece of data that i have that in the last year we have um donated the london living wage equivalent of 173,000 pounds worth of uh, volunteer hours so if you paid people for volunteering, 
that's the amount of money you would have to spend to get the staff hours that we do. Well, that's mad. And, you know, of course, people are doing that because of the love of their community and the love of doing something positive in their community. But but I do feel, and this is me slight, kind of getting slightly getting on my soapbox, is that successive governments know that the Trussell Trust Network of food banks and independent food banks exist to plug their policy failures. And, and unless something really holistic and joined up is done, I don't see that situation changing because there isn't a direct feedback loop between people like Lily and myself and all of the other people working and volunteering and operating food banks and government policy, right? Like, so there are, you know, occasional select committees and occasional research projects and occasional feedback or consultation, consultations that happen. And so we rush to, to participate in those things. But that's also pressure on us. That's staff hours and man hours that we're sending to those select committees and sending to those consultations. But there isn't an, a regular way where those of us at the coalface of food poverty can report back to institutions who make policy and implement policy as to what they're doing wrong and how they can do things differently and frankly how bad the situation is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I only hope that that some of those people might be listening to this podcast and might start to understand the the depth of the of the issue. We have basically the five oh, what are they called? Sort of the social care categories. And that's where you've got households with children in need, children at risk, domestic violence, and mental health is the other big one. And I think that these types of people, to be honest, a lot of the time are what people think of when they think about who goes to a food bank, these kind of more extreme cases. They're the stereotype of the food bank user. But actually, they are not the majority of our users. They exist, obviously, far more of them than I would like there to be. But they are not the majority. And it's very much what Iram said, mix of people from all walks of life. And we have a lot of working people on our books. We have a lot of people who are working, both adults and a family working. But for whatever reason, zero hours contracts, insecure work, they're not getting enough money from that work to be able to provide for their families. And like I said, we've got people with debt that it looks like they should be working. We've got people with all kinds of different situations. And it's impossible to try and summarise them all because actually, as you speak to each person, everyone's situation is so unique and everyone's kind of got their own twist of how they ended up in this scenario and what happened to them in their journey of life that brought them to us. And there is no clear this is who they are. And there is no way for people to make those assumptions. You could pass these people on the street. And I find it interesting because I do now, I do in our local area that so many of the people who come to our food bank, I, bank, I see them out and about. And of course they are. Why shouldn't they be? They're just living their lives. And it's not like you can tell. Why would you be able to tell where they get their food from? They're just normal people. We're all just people living our lives, trying to do the best we can and try to provide for ourselves and our families. That's kind of all there is to it. Yeah, I see families um, at my daughter's school. So my daughter goes to the local primary school yeah. and I see families who come to us um, at my daughter's school at, you know, drop off and pick up every day. And, you know, and if they are happy to greet and have a chat, I'm happy to do that. But I would never, you know, I think there's a huge burden on us to never out people because people within my community at school do know that I'm a trustee of the food bank and that I volunteer. So I would never greet at someone I don't know socially and out them. And I think that's really important for a community organization because everyone's entitled to their privacy, everyone's entitled to their dignity. And that's something, you know, is, is difficult for us to provide 
because of the demand, because, you know, we have 500 people coming every week. But when we do see clients out and about, as Lily said, as they should be in their own communities with their children, with their families. Yeah, it's it's people from all walks of life. One thing I did want to mention is for our particular food bank, we have had a very, very recent but huge spike in international students coming to our food bank. It's a very specific instance, but so we have a lot of international students whose families will pool um, resources for six months. And by families, I mean large extended families, you know, uncles, aunties, cousins, everyone will put all their money into a bank account for six months to show the home office that they have the funds required to, you know, for that student to do a year long master's course or a nine month master's course. And then when those students come, those family members will remove those funds, often leaving that student and often their dependents in a very precarious state. And so some of the students are doing zero hours work on top of their studies. So they're all on a no recourse to public funds visa, which means they cannot uh, get benefits or any kind of help from the government. And because we are an open access food bank, many of them have heard about us and we get a steady stream. And so this has created an operational dilemma for us, uh, an, a, an operational and a moral dilemma, because it's very clear to us talking to these clients that they need food. Many of them will have very young children with them. So most of them will be you know, single and will be just that person alone. But we also have families where there's a student, a partner and a very young child. But again, we are taking on failures in institutions and immigration policy and we're at the forefront of that so we have now created a system where after three visits we contact that student's university and we say can any if with their permission and many of them will not give permission they'll just stop coming to the food bank and say no no i don't want you to i don't want you to contact my university because i'm really afraid of being deported i'm really afraid of being sent home you know my family has saved for years just to get me to just to afford the fees and the airfare you know, we have gone into debt, we have sold property, just to give us this opportunity of getting a degree in the UK and seeing what we can make afterwards. So please don't report that I'm getting food aid to my university. Uh, and then they'll disappear into the ether. I think listeners need to understand that food poverty is a changing beast. And, you know, social conditions and things that are happening maybe overseas, things that are happening in our immigration system, things that are happening, wars, conflicts, you know, severe economic um, you know, need happening somewhere across the world could impact, you know, a food bank in East London. Uh, and I think those connections can be quite hard to make because we think of food banks as kind of these hyper-local institutions, but we are at the whim of global forces just as much. As, so, example, one of our peaks was when we had um, people from Ukraine coming in, you know, on emergency visas and, you know, being asylum seekers and refugees, we just started to get, you know, we just noticed we we're registering 20, 30 Ukrainian families every week. And that was like, oh, yeah. So immediately we saw once they started coming in, that was happening when they'd get placed in East London. And then the council would refer them to us as a food bank and say, go there and get your food. So, yeah, I think I really want to draw attention of the listener to kind of external forces that impact food, how food po poverty presents itself in different places. Yeah, I mean, actually, it would be really good to talk more about that, about where, what we need to do to kind of stop food poverty. What would you say needs to happen in order to stop it? Not a small question. Well, that feels like a bit of an impossible question there. So how long <laughs> do we have? We need a second podcast, maybe, to list all the million things that need to happen. I think a lot of this comes back to the cost of living crisis, talking about food bank usage going up and why so many started now. 
And, you know, particularly with your story about the international students, Iram, on a mild tangent, I used to lecture international students and thinking about why are international students coming here? It's because of this promise of a better life, isn't it? It's this idea that the UK is this amazing, progressive Western world, that there's so much promise that they'll make all this money, they'll be able to send it home to their families. You know, I'm from an immigrant family myself, and this is what my parents did back in the 70s. And that was a very different time that they did it, where that was something that they were able to make possible. But these days where you have things like our cost of living crisis, people are coming over and realizing that the numbers don't add up anymore. And it's not possible to just magically get this job or claim these benefits or anything that it's just not possible to make ends meet. And you're meant to be in that specific scenario, you're meant to be studying, you're meant to be getting your degree, not just trying valiantly to survive. That's not what people come over expecting to be the case in a developed country like ours. And that's that's one of the kind of challenges there. But ultimately, you know, I do think what's the solution? Obviously, there is policy solutions. There's, you know, I, I say in inverted commas, simple solutions around, you know, the benefits mechanisms, all of the different benefits mechanisms looking from asylum seekers to two child cap to all of it across the board, how universal credit works, how PIP is awarded, all of those things. But I think it's a question that I don't have the answer to around, you know, why are we in a cost of living crisis? Why is everything going up? And what, what does that look like for that to normalise and for things to become affordable again? Because I think it's, you know, on another tangent, thinking about housing, I don't understand how it gets so expensive all the time. I don't understand who's affording any housing in London whatsoever. And you hear kind of very, when I say this to my friends and colleagues, very flippant comments no, it's it's the billionaires from abroad, but it's like they're not living on my street, though. I don't have any Russian billionaires that I'm aware of. So where are people getting the money and how does this how do all these prices keep on going up? It's sort of an economics thing that's a little bit beyond me, I think. But uh, that's that's what I think needs to stabilize and normalize in some way for things to begin on the path back to manageable. So I think Lily's touched on a really important one, housing. It's vital. We know that the the stock of social housing, you know, since the 80s has not been replenished at anywhere near the, the levels that it needs to be. And putting a roof over your family's head is a is a vital part of your expenditure. We know that, for example, in Tower Hamlets, I believe this is correct, that housing benefit has been capped in 2016 and has not risen since. And we know that the cost of housing, the cost of providing, you know, whether it's especially with private landlords has risen exponentially and is rising all the time. Just the other day, we had a client tell me that their landlord, their private landlord, and they receive housing benefit, but their private landlord has raised their rent by over £200 a month. And they were in tears. So they're like, where is that extra £200 a month coming from? You know, clearly I'm coming to a food bank. I don't have that extra £200 a month. To, to pay and so where are we going to move the cost of moving and I think you know there's there's this very flippant conversation I think I, I you know I read it in lots of media and you know kind of especially in kind of government circles or well you shouldn't live in London if you can't afford to but you can't afford to move either you know that the cost of actually mm -hmm. moving your entire household from one domicile to another is thousands and thousands of pounds and then to rent another private house the deposit, the, you know, people are paying a year's deposit, you know, a year's rent up front. No person using a food bank has the ability to pay a year's rent up front or to offer £200 a month over the asking rental price. 
So I think housing is a huge component of this, of the pressure that our clients are facing. So rising private rents and people being on the list for council homes for years and years and years. We've had clients who just, you know, have almost given up the possibility of, of getting a council house. And we try and, you know, advocate for them as we, if we can and as we can. But I think there are structural issues specifically around housing and benefits provision that are, you know, really deeply entrenched. We know we've lived through a decade, we are living through a decade and, you know, and a half of cuts to funding for vital services that people need, specifically in communities like Tower Hamlets. We have that, that kind of have all sorts of offshoot problems in terms of mental health, in terms of domestic violence, in terms of, you know, kind of domicile insecurity so much. So, yeah, I mean, I echo what Lily said. It's too big to almost think about. But it's, I think, at a very radical level, a complete overhaul of so many interlocking systems that have ossified into kind of a posture of almost assuming that people are gaming the system. And what I know from hundreds and hundreds of clients every week is, for God's sake, people are not gaming the system. They are trying to survive. They're trying to feed their families. They're trying to live a life of dignity and, and you know, that's the first thing is, is dignity and having food. And then of course we want joy. And so I think there's from government, successive governments of a politi particular political stripe, we have this kind of reflexive attitude of benefit scroungers and people using food banks when they really don't need to. And that kind of attitude is not going to create a policy overhaul across all of these infrastructural pillars of you know of a person's life of a family's life that we need to really tackle the root source and you know at the very basic economic level salaries and wages have not kept up with inflation so you know and we as very privileged people with a roof over our head and enough money to feed our families we notice that when we go to the supermarket every week i notice that that my basket of weekly shopping costs a lot more and the same things that we buy like milk and bread and eggs and cereal for my daughter and this is from someone who can afford those things. So I think definitely inflation and, and wages are a huge thing. And we see that across the board. We see that for doctors. We see that for transport workers. We see that for teachers. It's not just people who are using a food bank. I see that in my daughter's school teachers. They are struggling. So we see that across private sector workers. Taxation need to, everything needs to be overhauled. You know, we're not taxing the richest in this country as much as we should to cover the cost of public services and somehow public services are seen as a nice to have thing instead of the basis of a of a dignified society where people that that is you know i think we should all be having in 2023 in the united kingdom i mean otherwise you know what is there to say if one of the richest nations in the world has 2000 food banks uh, and people who are coming to those food banks for extended periods of time Sorry, that sounded a bit soapboxy, but I think it is such it's it's an it's an issue of the willingness and the desire on the part of people who can create meaningful change to actually engage with what that change entails. And, you know, and that's a difficult thing to convince the people who need to be convinced of. Yes, I mean, I'm very happy for you to be on your soapbox because, you know, I'll get on it with you and dance around and, and talk about all these things because I've been learning a lot about finance recently and inflation and the fallout from the economic kind of instability that we have at the top. And, you know, just the fact that 
you know, rich people don't pay taxes. They, you know, they they live off their assets and these things aren't taxed in the same way that, that the middle class and the, and the poor are. So we really are involved in a system whereby people at the top can get away with kind of them, themselves messing around with whatever financial things they want to and kind of, you know, the government can print more money and then we just end up having incredible inflation, which ends up hitting the people who it hurts the most. And it's this kind of tragic circular situation where, you know, some people are fine and, and others just get worse and worse and worse. And we have this intense inequality and it's so frustrating. And you're right. I think it's it's kind of it seems to be throughout history that every time we try and get the people who might have more money and power to be more accountable, they manage to squirm their way out of doing things slightly differently in terms of taxation or whatever. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you that there are these massive structural changes. So it just is very heartwarming to know that there are people out there who care. And what does the future hold for your food banks and for yourselves as we wrap up? Oh, I could. I don't know what the future holds for myself. That's a difficult question. I think for the food bank, our focus at the moment. So over the summer, we had for our management committee, we had an away day. And we've done a lot of strategic planning and putting together our five year plan and all of this. And we are very clear in our focus, which I've already mentioned around really focusing on the underlying support that we can have. And that's why we call ourselves a Himes Park hub, as opposed to just Himes Park Food Aid, which was kind of the brand as it started. We want to move away from seeing food as, you know, the thing and actually just support for the community being the thing. And part of that support is obviously food but really looking at what are the other needs in the community and how can we provide that in a meaningful and accessible manner. I think we're in a place of, you know, getting to through this winter. So I think our immediate um, focus is on supporting our clients as best as we can in these challenging weather conditions and supporting our volunteers as best as we can in our challenging conditions and to then negotiate as best as possible to get into our permanent location as soon as we can. And once we're in, we want to regularize our offering to be open more days a week so people can come at different times that suit them. And because then hopefully we'll be seeing smaller numbers of clients at each on each day, we can then stratify into becoming more of a hub you know which is something we were when we were smaller and then you know had to kind of give up as our numbers rose and rose and to then include things like citizen advice uh, legal advice uh, and to kind of take you know to, to take on more of a casework support referral aspect to our work amazing thank you so much and if people want to donate to the food bank in kind or with a monetary donation how can they do that can you tell us and how can they follow you and or the food bank Cool. We have a crowdfunder that you can specifically donate through if you'd like to. And again, I will give Marianne the link to share with this podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Himes Park Food Aid. We're also on Instagram at Himes Park Hub. And we are on the internet. Our website is hphub.co.uk. If you live in the local area and would like to visit, you are also very welcome to come in. Or if you'd like to volunteer, I'm always welcoming volunteers. And we have a lot of different opportunities that you can help out in the daytime, actually running the food bank itself, giving out food, being on the front desk, um, being one of our befrienders, lots of different opportunities, being in the kitchen or helping sort out stock in the back. 
We also have evening teams that reset our food bank and get um, our cages of food all loaded up so it's ready to run the next day. And we have more teams running in the evenings, um, as I said, drivers who collect food from supermarkets. And then we've got volunteers who are at the church who open it up and take the food off the drivers and put it away into fridges and freezers at 9 p.m. at night. And I'm very grateful to all those people. If you have a bit of time available and would like to contribute, please do get in touch. And I think you can see details on our website on hphub.co.uk. So we have a webpage at www.bofoodbank.org. I'm sure Marianne will put um, all this info in the show notes. Um, we are running a matched giving campaign leading up to Christmas where our, co- our corporate, one of our corporate sponsors has agreed to match any donations up to £50,000. So if you are able to donate, that would mean the world to us. So you can find a donation link on our webpage. You can also find a donation link on our Instagram page very soon. And, you know, as I said, I'm sure Marianne will provide all those, all that information in the show notes. So please come and donate to us. Please come and visit us if you want to see us. We're at Rains Foundation School on Monday, Monday mornings, 8.30 to half 12. And um, Wednesdays at 2 to 7, please volunteer. We're always looking for more volunteers. Come in for a session, you know, come in for longer and just see the work we're doing. As I said, we do prefer cash donations because that allows us to buy the kinds of foods that are appropriate for our community. But if you have you know a whole bunch of cereal that you want to donate or pasta or rice we are more than happy to take that off your hands so just get in touch with us through our website or through our instagram page and um, personally for me i run my own consulting company called inclusive growth and you can find me on our website if you want to follow me i think that's about it amazing thank you so much and of course we will put all of those details on the show notes so that people can link to them very easily thank you so much to both of you for coming in and talking about this issue it is such an important issue which I feel like people don't know enough about so it's been really really good to deep dive into it and get your perspectives and see what has been going on so thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you and yeah I'll see you both soon I would suspect (laughs) absolutely thank you very much Marianne for the opportunity it's been lovely to have this chat for listening to justice studio sessions we have so enjoyed deep diving into social justice with you justice studio provides compassionate consultancy rooted in social justice if you would like to work with us please visit our website at www.justicestudio.org or email us at info at this podcast relies on your support If you love our content and would like to see this podcast reach more people, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a lovely review. We would be delighted for you to share your thoughts, musings or favourite parts of the podcast with us on social media. You can tag and or follow Marianne at creatrix.london and Justice Studio at Justice Studio on all the major social sites. This podcast was hosted by Marianne Moore and produced by Justice Studio Limited. The music was by Luke Fraser at The Tonic, and the artwork was by Marianne. Thank you so much for listening.